enduring military mantra is adapt and overcome. This is a rallying cry for unseen challenges and life's curveballs, and a reminder that dire circumstances will not defeat us. When the mission matters, we rise to the occasion. This podcast combines military veteran experiences, business acumen, and the human spirit for potent solutions to real-world challenges. Certain experiences challenge every cell of your body. Former Green Beret Jan Rutherford teaches as he leads expeditions with executives and special operations veterans all over the world. Accomplished author, international speaker, and self-reliance expert, Jan has been a student of how adversity strengthens character to help leaders and teams realize truly heroic aspirations. I want to welcome Jan Rutherford to the podcast. Jan spent six years in the Special Forces as a medic and an A-team executive officer, and then three years as a military intelligence officer. He's the founder of Self-Reliant Leadership and works with leaders who have heroic aspirations and are looking for the best ways to grow their organization and develop their people. Jan's the author of The Littlest Green Beret on Self-Reliant Leadership. He's a TED Talk speaker, and he's also a senior instructor at the University of Colorado Denver Business School. He teaches MBA leadership courses in the U.S., Republic of Ireland, and Northern Ireland. Jan, thanks for coming today. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. It's, um, it's great to be here, and you um, actually are one of my heroes. Oh my gosh, I, I want to explore that in much more depth in another episode. <laughs> Jan, you have really terrific background and experience, and I think that you can probably relate that to the situation we have today where healthcare workers are rushing into this unknown, really challenging situation at the front lines of the battle against COVID-19. I wonder how in the past have you prepared yourself and your teams for such circumstances? Yeah, when when I was 17 and a high school senior, I didn't have a lot of options. And I went to the Army recruiting station and tried to join the Army. But at 101 pounds, they wouldn't let me. I didn't weigh enough. So I got up to a a whopping 109 and they let me join. And and then I went to my mentor, George, who happened to be in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, became a Green Beret and Airborne after the age of 40. I'm getting ready to go in. And, I, and then I got up to a whopping 114 pounds to become a green brand. I said, George, you know, do you have any advice for me? And George said, yes. He goes, when it gets bad, take it day by day. When it's really bad, hour by hour. And when it's horrible, moment by moment. I, I put that to use so fast because the training was so hard and so long. And it didn't seem like the pain and suffering were ever going to end. That advice has served me well. It, that advice got George through three wars. So um, I, I'm reminding myself of that when, when I'm kind of getting down in the dumps and, and the executive coaching I do, hey, let's just take it moment by moment. Let's get through um, this first part. And before we know it, um, we'll get through the day. That's really great advice just to focus on the next step, the next thing in front of you. Yeah. What intrinsically do you draw on to help you through those tough moments? Well, I, you know, I, I think um, it's a sense of duty for others. It, you know, it's been, so many people have said, gosh, you got to put your oxygen mask on first. And that it's so true. If, if you're not squared away, as we say in the military, mentally, emotionally, and physically, I don't see how you can lead others, how can you can inspire them and hope. And so you know, taking that time for maintenance, if you will, is not selfish. It's actually one of the most selfless things you can do. 
because this whole idea of leadership influencing others is really about managing your energy and the energy of those around you. How do you manage the energy of those around you? Can you give me an example of that? Well, I, I mean, you, you, you've got to be hopeful and positive and inspiring. And I think it's really a combination of, of confidence and humility. And what we're seeing these days is the leaders that are, are most effective are the ones that demonstrate the most empathy. I was um, witness to a couple town halls this past week with CEOs, and I saw examples of CEOs that jumped right into the business and um, like, hey, everything's normal. And I saw some that really took the time to help people, you know, help them understand that, hey, I know where you're at. You're, you know, everybody's at a different place. We're going to meet you where you are and we're going to pick up from there. And you've got to be squared away because at the end of the day, you have a duty to all these people around you and their families and their partners and their communities. Everything that we're doing right now, it has this gigantic ripple effect. And in some ways, we know that now more than we've ever realized it. Yeah, that really resonates with me, that sense of duty and, and service. Uh, and we're seeing that, you know, with the healthcare workers going in, but maybe they haven't experienced the um, challenges to the scale that some of the military veterans have. And that's one of the reasons we're talking to military veterans. Do you have a good example of grit from your military experience? Yeah. You know, we're hearing a lot about resiliency these days and grit and, you know, resili resiliency to me is really bounce back ability. You know, you got knocked down, you get back up. I don't think what we're going through calls for resiliency. Um, I, I think it calls for grit, which is really sustained persistence that you're going to grind it through. You're going to stick, stick to it. And, you know, I kind of remember, um, being on these rucksack marches in, in special forces where you'd be out and it was always before daybreak and maybe you went five miles, maybe you went 10 miles and maybe the pack weighed 50 pounds, maybe it weighed a hundred, but you were doing really fast walking, like, like 12 minute miles, like speed walking. And it felt like somebody had a blowtorch on your shins and you're coming into the compound, you could see the lights and you're like, oh, the pain and suffering is almost over. And you'd come into the compound go by the flagpole. And you're like, wait a minute, that's the flagpole. We're supposed to stop. And they'd march you right out the other side of the compound through another gate. And you didn't know if you're going five minutes or five miles. So what you really didn't know was how long the pain and suffering were going to last. And what the purpose of it was to make people quit because they know if people don't know how long it's going to hurt that they quit. And that's sort of where we're at now. Um, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, we don't know how long it's going to last. The pain and suffering seems to go on. But we have to pick ourselves up and serve and do what we can do to the best of our ability and um, know that even though it feels permanent, it, it is not permanent. The pain and suffering will end. We will get through it, as everybody says. And the best example I've heard is this is a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. We, we don't know where all those parts are yet. I, I kind of think we're at the beginning of the middle at this moment, which means I, I'm not going to get my expectations up for... <laughs> anything I have planned this summer and, uh, you know, just be grateful for the, the things that I do have. I want to go back to that story about being on that, that march or even being in PT and going past the flagpole. Once you realize that you can't quit now, how do you summon that inner, that extra reserve or that extra strength? Well, for, for me back then, I just remembered all the people that said I wasn't going to make it. And I'm like, uh, I'm not going to let them be right. So that, that, was, that was how I got through it back then. 
now I, I feel a, a duty to all the people counting on me. I, I, I work with a lot of executives and CEOs. And what's amazing is I don't work with a single one who has been negative and down in the dumps through this. Every one of them are positive. They admit, hey, this, this, this really stinks. It's a gigantic inconvenience. People are suffering incredibly, but they're also looking at it you know, as an opportunity. Hey, um, there's a lot of things wrong in our communities, our society, and now we get to reinvent the business and reinvent ourselves. And one of the things I was thinking about on my run this morning was I'm actually worried that the businesses are reinventing themselves faster than the people are and that the people are going to be left behind. Anybody out there thinks that they don't have to reinvent themselves and learn new skills and adapt, you know, I, 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 I think um, you're, you're really underestimating, you know, the challenge before us because there's not a single CEO I'm working with that's not thinking two years down the road. They're already delegated the crisis management to somebody else and they're thinking, what are we going to do to pull out of this? And a lot of it has to do with being lean, which means less people. So again, you know, what are you doing to constantly reinvent yourself? I think that's so important. And, you know, maybe the hallmark of a situation that's really ambiguous is that it's the cradle of ingenuity and improvisation, right? And necessity mm -hmm. breeds. <laughs> necessity is the mother yep. of invention. So how can people, I guess, yep. move past that, that initial shock of a situation like that and start to tap those reserves of creativity? It's a great question. I think, you know, what I recommend is, um, you know, I, I remember doing a officer professional development when I was a young lieutenant and this Air Force colonel came in and told all these war stories about Vietnam as a fighter pilot. And at the end, he said, if you remember nothing about my talk, remember this, all great leaders have kept journals. And that's what I remember most about it. And I thought, well, I want to be a great leader. Maybe I should keep a journal. And I've kept a journal ever since. And one of the things that I really recommend to start journaling is four things that you write down. And it, it's, it's not even four sentences. And it's real quick at the end of the day. First thing is write the day, one through 10. 10 being the best. The, the second thing is, what are you grateful for? What, you know, of all the things in your life, what are you grateful for? The third is, what did you learn today? And then the fourth and final thing is, what is the single most important priority for you tomorrow? And over time, as you look at that, you'll start to see patterns. Um, have I had more good days and bad days? You know, am I spreading, you know, am I making sure is that that gratitude that I have for the thing, the good things in my life actually making more, me more optimistic? As far as learning, what are the categories by which I'm learning? Should I spend more time looking at learning management systems or podcasts or reading books or articles to, you know, enhance my analytical if I'm weak there, to enhance my creativity if I'm weak there? And then the whole idea of a priority for the tomorrow is to focus. The thing I think that all of us are falling into this trap over the past month with the COVID crisis is we're all busy. Um, and that doesn't mean we're, we're productive and effective. I, I actually think it's a mistake to be as busy as we've all been because we're not taking a step back thinking and trying to figure out, well, what's the opportunity based on all these challenges, what's the opportunity for me in the future? How am I going to serve? 
in a way that I can take care of my family and be fulfilled, given that everything is upside down. I was going to ask you if you have a resource that you'd recommend, you know, for people during this time, whether it's something to help them get through or something to help them retool. And um, so a journal sounds like one great resource. Do you have any others that come to mind? Yes. Uh, th there's a book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. Victor was a Holocaust survivor, and he is the father of logotherapy. And basically, he is the person that said, hey, you know, the guards could take away all kinds of freedoms from me, but the one thing they could not take, they could not control my response to the environment. And I think when we look at things, especially when we're frustrated, you know, we look at the circle of concern. It's gigantic. You know, we're all worried about the entire world right now. Then we look at, well, of the things that I'm concerned about, what are the things that I can actually influence? And that circle's a little bit smaller, or maybe a lot smaller. And then the circle that's really small are the things that we actually control. And there's only two things. Viktor Frankl said it was our response to the environment, which is true. The other one is where we spend our time. All of us that are super busy, um, chances are what we are working on is urgent, important things. But for how long will those things matter? If we work on the things that are important and not urgent, I guarantee those things will matter the longest. And we get to decide. But it takes a certain amount of self-discipline to, to basically de-busy yourself or create a stop-doing list. Because you're never going to get to all the things that you want to do if you don't create a stop-doing list. And so many of the things that we did a month ago just don't matter now. They're, they're irrelevant. They don't move the needle. So Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. Thanks for that. You know, Lee and I work with someone named Paul who talks about urgency and importance being two of the vectors, but, but the real one is significance. And I think it's just what you said. Mm, yep. I think he sees it yep. on a 3D model. Yeah. But, uh, but to your <laughs> point, you can't do the, signif the most significant things if you're uh, not being choosy about where you spend your time. And, and you know, back to your question about creativity, you know, no, no, nobody's an expert on the future. I mean, it doesn't exist. There are futurists who spend lots of time thinking about what might happen. And I think we all need to develop that skill now is to think, well, you know, what's happened? I'll, I'll give you an example. If you've watched any TV, you've seen a commercial for cars that basically say 84 months, free financing, you buy it online and we'll bring it to your house. Do you think anybody is ever going to want to go to a car dealership again to buy a car? No. I mean, it's the most painful experience in the world. And now that they, they basically turned on the easy button to buy a car, who's going to do that? Buying a car has become a transaction. The thought that somebody can influence your buying decision. And, and before the coronavirus, ha you know, with the crisis that we're in, it was already known that 80% of the time when people went to a car lot, they had 80% of the information they needed to buy that car. Now they're going to have 99. So if you're a car salesman, um, that, that's over. That's over. If you're a keynote speaker and that's your, you know, where 90% of your revenue comes from, that, that's over for a long time. So what are you doing to reinvent yourself? And if you look at all the salespeople out there, they're all trying to figure out how do I create a customer intimacy when I can't even go to coffee and shake a hand? 
And, and people are already, after one month, sick of webinars. <laughs> We've all been webinared to death. So we're going to have to figure out how to do things differently. And at the same time, we're actually all in each other's homes now. So there's this new different sort of intimacy when I can see where you live and yes. your pets and your spouse and your children. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's changed. So in stressful times, how do you wind down? How do you de-stress yourself? For me, my whole life, it's been running, hiking, or biking. It, that, it is that and that simple. And I've been really fortunate to ride my bike up this big mountain in Maui called Haleakala. And in January, I got to go again. Um, and what's so great about that ride is I read once somewhere that to do it, that you need to pack patience, which I am in short supply of. And so that ride is so good for me. And there's two places, at least two places on the way up in Times New Roman, you know, that's about a foot long and, and it's light baby blue stenciled in the pavement and it says, breathe. And it is the best advice you could give somebody when they're doing something really hard and challenging and something that requires patience. And because the whole way up Haleakala on a good day, you can see the top and it's only 37 miles. But it takes a long time, and that last 12 miles is forever because it's a bunch of switchback. And the best thing you can do is just breathe and slow down and relax. And so when I work out, I'm really, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in, on Maui and just relax. I'm not trying to go for best times. I'm just trying to, to breathe. I love that idea of packing patience. Yeah. And I want to ask you about a different sort of packing if you're packing for a deployment or a long trip away from your loved ones, what is the one thing that you bring with you to provide comfort? Something to read. Yeah, I think back to, um, you know, as a, as a young soldier, boy, I, I had the classics. You know, that's what I would take. Um, books and O. Henry short stories or um, just, just different things and, you know, get lost in a different world. I also want to go back to the thought about breathing. Um, just breathing. The moment before you have to jump into action in maybe a crisis moment or an unfamiliar environment, there's this little pause. There's this moment you have right before you move into that. Can you think of a time when you've done that and what thought ran through your head? It reminds me of uh, being at an Army-Navy game, actually. This, you know, when you asked me this, because I had the privilege of being under the bleachers at one point, and I made an introduction to, from one cadet to somebody that was an old soldier. This person was probably 26 years old, Apache pilot, and they'd been in war. So here you have a, an old guy, 26 years old, and a young guy, like 20. And, and again, I'm being sarcastic. You had two very young men. But there, there was such a difference, you know, that five, six years. And I remember the older soldier saying to the cadet, when you go to war and he's literally pointing in his chest with a finger, he's like, you need to be calm and competent. If you're calling for somebody on the radio like me, you better be calm and competent because you need to inspire hope and confidence and positivity in your, in your soldiers. And if you're spastic and frenetic, you're not going to do anybody any good. And fast forward, I was recently with a pretty special, special operations sergeant major. And he was telling me about a recent firefight he was in, and 11 of his soldiers were wounded all at once. 
and he was calling in support. And he said, um, he looked down at his Garmin and his heart rate was 65. <laughs> it was 65. And here he was in a firefight calling in support. Um, you think about calm and competent. Holy moly. Y you know that person's going to make good decisions. Um, you know, they're, they're not going to be where their vision's narrowed, um, all those different things. He still had a broad perspective. Um, he wasn't singularly focused. He was able to pay attention to all these different things going around. And I think it goes back to, you know, breathing and, and realizing, hey, there's a lot going on and I need to, I, I, I can't lose my situational awareness. Wow. That's a great story. Yep. Long time ago. You were a medic. Do you, can you describe a scenario that might be similar to what people are experiencing in the hospitals that are overrun right now? It's been a long time, but I, I remember I was at an aid station that was 50 miles from anyone, you know, no doctors. So we were the doctor substitutes as Green Beret medics. And I remember somebody came in the aid station and um, there, they, they had a traumatic wound. And there was a bleeder, you know, and a small artery was spurting out blood. It wasn't a carotid or a femoral artery, but it was a small artery. And I couldn't get it stopped. I couldn't find it and, you know, snip it with some hemostats and clamp it down. And, and I remember just wanting to look around and like, go, somebody take this. I, I, I can't do this. And there was nobody to give it to. And I remember like, that was just this horrible feeling. And it's like, Hey, if it's to be, it's up to me, you know, like dig deep. And the, the next time I ever had that feeling was um, I was trying to land a plane in some really nasty wind conditions. And I was trying to land and then I had to go around. And I tried to land and the winds were all squirrely and I went around and I remember going, I just want somebody else to land the plane. <laughs> and I remember going, there's nobody else. And I went, oh my God, this is that same feeling. And it's like, and I remember, like I said to myself, suck it up, buttercup, you know, do what you got to do, you know, be calm, you know, focus. And, um, and I remember that old pilot adage, it's better to be on the ground wishing you were up than be up wishing you were down. Apparently it turned out just fine because you're here with us. Yeah. They say every, um, every landing you walk away from is a good landing. So I guess I had all good landings. I'm thankful for that. Okay, Jan, any last advice for all of these nurses and healthcare professionals that are, you know, rushing to the new front to yep. battle what is one of the most significant, you know, enemies of our time? We're, we're you know, staying with the, the whole theme of some military analogies. And I was thinking about those rucksack marches. One of the things that we had to do on those was we had to share gear. And one of the things was this big, heavy machine gun. Wait, 23 pounds and you had to share it. And I remember at the beginning when you had it, 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 it was like a counterweight on your front because the rucksack pulled you back. And there was two modes that you're in. You're either the person saying, give me it. I'm going to take some of your load or you were the person telling other people take it. And it's interesting because if you hold that weapon too long, that's selfish because eventually you're going to wear yourself out and you're going to slow the team down. The other point is if at some point you don't take that from somebody and carry that, that's unfair to the team. And so I think, you know, that whole idea of 
carrying a load and giving a load is really important. I, I know with a lot of executive teams, they'll all raise their hand and say, hey, anything I can do, just let me know. But they're terrible about them raising their hand, waving the white flag and saying, I need help. And I think it's important now more than ever to, to not, you know, to have the humility, the vulnerability to raise the white flag and say, I, I need help. And let people, you know, help you carry your load, let you take a break. And then at the same time, when you're, you've got good strength and energy to look around and see how you can help other people. I think that's what we need to do to have each other's back more than, more than ever. That resonates so much with me because I remember <laughs> carrying that machine gun myself for the parts of it. You know, one other thing that struck me was I didn't really feel like I was a real member of the squad mm -hmm. until I had carried my piece and done my share of that. And then mm -hmm. I felt like I yep. was part of the team afterwards. <laughs> yeah. As much as it sucked, I carried that. I gave it up to someone else and did my part yep. and took it back again when it was yep. my turn again, but that felt good. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your perspective. Yeah. Well, thank you, Cheryl. And, um, and thanks to all the people, all the people on the front lines um, that are, are, doing heroic things and and making enormous sacrifices. I, I've heard on the news some people say, you know, hey, I didn't sign up for this. Um, whereas first responders and military all kind of know and they sign up for, they might be writing a blank check. A again, you know, for those that are, are doing that, um, you know, my hat's off to you. And, um, you know, the, the sacrifice you and your family are making are, are so appreciated. And um, as everyone says, we will get through it and we'll get through it together. And as a country, I know that we're going to come out stronger because of this. I agree with that. And I want to return that thanks to you and your family. I know your son is looking at another deployment in very uncertain circumstances now. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate your family's service and the example you set. Thanks, Cheryl. Hey, thanks for joining us. We hope you'll share this with a healthcare worker or a first responder that you care about. Also, we hope you'll subscribe. This podcast was sponsored by TA Group Holdings with a partnership with New West Group. Till next time, adapt and overcome.